Thank you, Randy. Uh, it is such a pleasure to be with you all again this morning. Um, I, I really enjoyed my time last night with you all. Uh, what I would love to do is just give a kind of a brief synopsis of where we've been, perhaps for some of you that weren't here last night, to kind of talk about, uh, just to give a kind of synopsis of what I'm building upon this morning. Uh, yesterday, we talked about the history of food in the Bible. My first talk was about that. And the thing that I wanted, uh, if I could just choose one thing out of that talk to put before you again, is just to remind you that the story of food in the Bible teaches us that God communes with his people through creation. Food is a means of communion. We are hungry beings, and God has pledged himself to be the one who satisfies all of our desires. He's the one who gave us those desires in the first place. And so the story of, uh, of food in the Bible shows us that God provides, and even when we turn away from him in Adam and Eve and reach for things that he has not given, when we put ourselves in his place, that God pledges himself to remedy that situation. And remember that great passage in Isaiah 25 where God eats the death that we deserve so that we might eat his food, the banquet that he sets of rich feast, of fattened fattened meats, and well-aged wine. Of course, that's all consummated in the, the Supper of the Lamb, in our communion with Him every Sunday. Creation fell in a meal, it is redeemed in a meal, and it will be consummated in a meal. Creation is given to us by God to draw us into His presence. The second talk was about... <clears throat> uh, about affirmation and the importance of affirmation. And I realized it after I thought about it last night, I didn't actually ever define what I mean by affirmation. Simply put, affirmation is receiving, loving, affirming what God has made, what he has given us. It's not imposing our meaning on the world. It's receiving and loving the meaning that God has given to us in the world that he has created. That's what affirmation is. And we considered particularly that statement from Chesterton that a true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. The most powerful motivation for fighting in our culture, for standing up for the things that we believe in that are constantly and really deeply under assault, um, is by loving the things that we are defending. You cannot defend something that you do not love. And so that's the importance. If we're going to be good soldiers fighting for these things, if our children are going to be raised to contend surely with the forces that they are going to have to contend with in the future, the only adequate source of that fight is to love what God has given and to be willing to interpose yourself to have real courage to stand up for it in the presence of an enemy. Love defends the beloved. So, and I think that Randy's exhortation this morning to think deeply about these things is really important because I want to say that I do think that we are under, in a time of unpre- unprecedented attack on the beloved, on the things that we love, on creation and reality itself. And we can live in a culture where there is no definition There is no definition between male and female. There's no definition between right and wrong. All of those things have been relativized and subject to the whims of human desire. 
That assault is like a tsunami that is cresting and it's coming for you. If you don't see the rise of soft totalitarianism in our, in our, in our moment in history, you're, have, you have your eyes closed. It is going to be, and I don't say this to pro- provoke fear, but to provoke sobriety. It is going to get harder for Christians. And Christians are going to have to be willing to stand up for the things that they have often taken for granted. We are no longer going to be able in our country to ride on the freedoms that we have been, we have been given in, in, uh, from our fathers. We're going to have to defend them in significant ways, even to the cost of ourselves. So thinking deeply about those resources that have been given to us by the Lord and by the church, through the church, is incredibly important. We have to do hard work. Every single one of us does, if we're going to be faithful in the days to come. So that's what's animating these talks and what I hope to uh, further spur you on to this morning. So the first talk this morning is eating gravel, acedia, <clears throat> and the loss of taste. How many of you have ever heard of acedia? Do you know what I'm talking about? Good. That's why I have, I'm doing this talk. <laughs> I'd like to begin with a proverb, Proverbs 17, 24. Wisdom is in the presence of the one who has understanding, but the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. In his brutal masterpiece, Blood Meridian, Cormac McCarthy gives us one of literature's most sinister and brutal villains. Judge Holden, is a man of extraordinary violence and cruelty. But under the violence lies a steadfast commitment to the vice of acedia, what we also call sloth. At one point, Judge Holden stops to explain why he devotes so much time and energy to capturing, studying, and then erasing Everything around him, from birds to artifacts, from children to the handicapped. This is what he says. Whatever exists, he said, whatever in creation exists without my knowledge, exists without my consent. These anonymous creatures may seem little or nothing in the world, yet the smallest crumb can devour us. Any smallest thing beyond yon rock out of man's knowing. Only nature can enslave man. And only when the existence of each last entity is routed out and made to stand naked before him will he be properly suzerain of the earth. Only when each last entity is routed out and made to stand naked before him, will he be properly suzerain of the earth? That's the philosophy that drives the violence of Judge Holden throughout the entire book. As R.J. Snell comments on these great words of Judge Holden, he says, the judge's authority is such that no other autonomous life is permitted. 
Quote, nothing must be permitted to occur save my dispensation, unquote. Even if that means killing or molesting everything under his rule, the judge serves as a diabolical revelation of our actual malaise. One held captive to the madness of acedia or sloth. And here's, what, here's how it's best expressed. Having rejected any norms given in creation, freedom is under no authority other than the awful lightness of the will. We are free to do as we wish, including violence against all being. There are no norms in creation. And because there are no norms, freedom is under no authority except our own will. What we want to be the case. That sounds familiar from last night. I believe acedia is the vice of our times. And I think it's especially so because very few people, even Christians, know about it. It's one of the seven deadly sins that we inherit from the medieval time. And yet we don't really understand it. And it's ironic that we don't because it is so prevalent, so very prevalent in our time. Acedia, as I mentioned, is also called sloth, giving the impression that acedia is mere laziness. When we talk about a sluggard or sloth in the Bible, we often think of just someone who doesn't like to work. But acedia is really much more sinister than simple laziness. It is an enemy that we must come to understand so that we can identify its tentacles in our lives, in our neighbors' lives, and especially in our children. And so that we can develop a frame of being that actively resists its lies. And that's kind of what I want to focus on. I'm going to unpack here what acedia is and give you kind of different dimensions of what it, how it reveals itself in our time. And then I'm going to finish the talk by giving you my thoughts as a pastor on how to combat it. How to combat it in your lives and how to develop habits of being in yourself that resists its lies. So what is acedia? Its etymology gives us a starting place. From the Greek, a, meaning lack, and kados, meaning care or concern. So in its etymological derivation, acedia simply means to lack care or to lack concern. At its heart, acedia is a longing for freedom, but not the freedom that comes from communion and submission to God and to the world that He has made, but freedom in an absolute sense. A freedom that comes from a lack of care or concern for reality. A freedom from any kind of restraint at all. I mentioned R.J. Snell at the beginning, but he's written a wonderful little book, another one that I will commend to you, called Acedia and Its Discontents. And he gives us a fuller picture in that book of what exactly Acedia is and fleshes out its nature in three main points which I want to focus on now. First, Acedia is disgust at being. 
Second, acedia is sadness at the good. And this finally results in the fact that acedia is a weightless prison that is bored. Disgust at being, sadness at the good, and the weightless prison of boredom. So, disgust at being. The fourth, fourth century monk, Evagarius of Ponticus, wrote about sloth, acedia. And he wrote that what is called sometimes, acedia is called the noonday demon because the monks believed that acedia tends to visit one in the midst of the noonday. The torpor. When you're bored and tired and wishing the day would seemingly unending. But he writes, the noonday demon sends the monk hatred against his place against life itself, and against the work of his hands, and makes him think that he has lost the love of his brethren, and that there is none to comfort him. He stirs the monk also to long for different places, in which he can find easily what is necessary for his life, and can carry on a much less toilsome and more expedient profession. Part of that is discontent with his place, with his station, with the limits of his life, and a longing for some other place where it will be easier, where the constraints that he experiences won't be there. It's discontent with this place and all of the constraints that occur in it. You might be familiar with the feeling that acedia gets, develops in us if you have had the experience of scrolling through your Facebook feed and seeing all of your neighbors doing your friends and people you know winging their way to Cancun, doing all kinds of things, and you think to yourself, my life is so boring. It's so ordinary. What am I doing with myself? All I have are work, work, work. Respond, my life is not like this. I need an escape. Have you ever felt that before? If you are on social media, I bet you have. That's acedia. Commenting on this particular passage from Evagarius, Snell notes, acedia reveals a certain internal instability, a hatred of place, work, and even life itself, manifested in the external instability of movement and departure, looking for new things, trying to find some other alternative to the burden of where my situation finds itself. The eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth, looking, searching, finding some diversion. The internal instability is fundamentally a destructive hatred of whatever particular good is given to the monk by God. In Asidia, the monk longs for a better place because he abhors what is there and fantasizes about what is not. In sloth, we abhor what is there. We abhor what is. We abhor limits, place, order, being. Here's most significant. Our misguided addiction to freedom without truth, Snell notes, 
is a revolt of the self against any charged world which might demand attendance, that would demand care and obligation or respect. It's an addiction to freedom that sees all of these limits of place, of obligation, of responsibility as an inherent limit, overthrow of the freedom that you crave. These are seen as insufferable, as illegitimate restrictions of our unbridled freedom. And so we find ourselves hating the place God has provided, the work God has given to us, and the proper ways of laboring. Given this disgust and hatred of the truth of being, we are stricken with acedia which becomes a form of infidelity, a breaking of a troth, a loathing of the truth. I think Snell has captured there the spirit of our age. Young people feel it extremely acutely. Every time I've taught about acedia to my college students, they look at me and they go, I can't believe how you've just been reading my email. You've been studying my thoughts. This is what I struggle with. I constantly am looking. I can't stand to be alone with my own thoughts. I have to have background music playing all the time. I don't like to sit still. My own thoughts and the responsibilities are burdensome to me and I want an escape. If you don't think young people struggle with this, again, I would say you're not paying attention. It is to the generation that has been raised, especially in the era of social media, they have this in their bones. They know this is a great struggle. They may not be able to name it, but they've felt the pull and the tug of it. What I want you to note is that acedia is hatred, a loathing. And I don't mean it's an active, it can be, I think, an active hatred, but it's a discontent, a fundamental discontent with the givenness of creation and its limits. especially the limits that it puts upon us. It hates the limits of being a creature. Rather than being the ground of our freedom, our creatureliness is something to be escaped. And as we're going to see, the end of Asida is often a form of escapism. Diversions. Anesthetic. It's interesting that I think acedia, at some level, is magnified in Adam and Eve's first sin. It's not, acedia is not something new to our age. It's been with us for a long time. Augustine notes that when Eve reached for the fruit, she was grasping for more than the whole. It's an interesting phrase that he uses. She's grasping for more than the whole. What did he mean by that? It means that one of the things fundamental in the temptation and also in the action to eat of the fruit was that Eve was suggesting that the order that God had given was not good enough. 
There was something more to be gotten by the fruit. She thought she was getting more by reaching and eating. That's how the serpent had, in fact, set it up, right? God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you will be like him. You're not yet, but you will be. You will gain something more, excuse me, if you eat of the fruit. And so, Augustine says, reached out and grasped for something more than the whole of what God had given. And by doing so, was fundamentally revolting against the limits of her own being, being made in the image of God, and being a creature. And the one limit that he had given her and, and, and Adam of not eating of the tree. Again, the serpent set that temptation up so that Eve thought she was getting something more. What she was getting, of course, was something much, much less. But if we don't understand the temptation, we will not be able to really understand the pull of what Satan was offering or how he was tempting Eve. It was a garden without limits. The prohibition against eating was a limit. Again, it's a limit that suggested there's a difference between Adam and Eve as creatures and God who is the creator. The Lord is the one who sets the limits. Adam and Eve submit to the limits. That's what it means to be a creature. It's good to submit to limits. But the very first temptation that Eve offered, or that Satan offered Eve, was that she could live without limits. She could be like God. Of course, that's not true of God either. His own nature and character is his limit. But that Eve could somehow escape the bonds of her creatureliness. And that that was desirable. That's the power of the temptation. But the sedia is also secondarily sadness at the good. Thomas Aquinas described sloth as one a sadness at the divine good, and two, as an aversion to acting. That's really interesting. A sadness at the divine good. So acedia and sloth, always in the history of Christian ethics, has sort of been associated with being sad, being depressed. And not just a sort of heaviness of spirit, but a heaviness of spirit that is set against the good being saddened by the good. And that leads then to an aversion to acting, to doing things, which is, of course, I think the derivation of where we see sloth as being just someone who doesn't like to do things. But there's something deeper, actually, in that aversion to acting. We'll see that in a moment. So how do we understand these two things? Well, in the Bible, joy is a response to the good of creation and to God's purpose to draw us into communion with Him. That's what we saw in our first talk uh, on the story of food. But in rejecting the good of the world, Asidia finds both the goodness of creation and its goal to draw us into communion with God as a deep source of sadness. That's not the goal of human life. 
That actually produces grief, the idea of being drawn into communion with God in submission to Him and in accordance with our nature and with with creation, being as it is. It's a source of sadness. And you might ask yourself, why is that sad? Receiving the truth of the world and friendship with God would mean subjection, subjugation of the will to reality. It would mean fundamentally being willing to be a creature and being willing to abide by the limits that he sets. And not just willingness, as in I'm going to tolerate it, but a full embrace of those limits, of what it means to be human. And that, of course, means subjecting the will, your will, to his. Snell notes that, quote, sloth resists friendship with God because of the burdens of commitment. That such a friendship and its concomitant transformations of the self would require. Because you can't be a friend of, of God without becoming like Him. Part of what Adam and Eve's go- the goal of their maturing was, by being friends with God, by worshiping and eating in His presence and walking with Him in the cool of the garden, they would become like Him. That's the path to being like Him. Not the path that Satan set before them to be like God. It's actually loving and submitting to the nature and the limits that God placed. And that creates friendship with Him and the transformation of our being to be like Him. But in Asidia, that is burdensome. It's regretful. It's sad. I have to change to be like God. I'd rather not. Does that sound familiar? The slothful are grieved at the cost of goodness. The cost of discipleship. The slothful realize that Jesus was right. You cannot serve God and mammon. Sloth chooses mammon. You can't have it both ways. It's like the rich young ruler who when he heard Jesus identified this reality in his life, put his finger right on it, and the outcome of that man was sadness, grief, because he had to choose. And the way of discipleship that Jesus was offering was a grief to him. Let me put it finally this way. The reason the reason that you cannot serve God and mammon is because mammon is a world without limits in which you are the king. You're the one who decides what will come and go, what you will get to be, how the resources of the world will be used, how your life will be used. To be a disciple of Jesus means to be submissive to the bonds, to the reality that he sets out for you, to his calling, even to the point of giving up your own life. It's this sadness that results in an aversion to acting. That's the second thing that Thomas Aquinas said, that it results in an aversion to action. 
Now, this is not an aversion to doing things, a simple lack of wanting to do things, but to pursuing the good work that God has given, to seeking the telos of being made in God's image, and to fulfilling one's nature. That's what you don't want to act upon. Sloth is a rejection of the transformation that such a pursuit of the good entails. But this doesn't mean that the slothful don't act. In fact, this is one of the ironies of it, which my students really recognize. Their lives are often filled with a frenzy of action. But its whole point is to distract them from their ultimate God-given purpose. It's a frenzy of action that is designed to distract. To keep your mind away from the weight of your responsibilities. And so the, the slothful are often workaholics. Not just those who sit around doing nothing. They work so that they can forget. It is the pursuit of the trivial in the place of the pursuit of the true. That's what sloth does. You ever seen a college-age young man who devotes himself to playing hours and hours and hours of video games? It's almost like he was stuck in time, like he never graduated. It's almost as if the games, almost as if, the games were a way to escape from the burden of reality. There are millions of young men like that in our country. They're captive to sloth. And this finally leads to sloth as a weightless prison of boredom. And when I say boredom, I'm not talking about the boredom of distracting yourself while you're doing something tedious like sitting in a traffic jam. We've all been there, you know. You're stuck. You think to yourself, this is a really tedious situation. What can I do to distract myself? I'm not talking about that kind of boredom. That is normal part of being human. Rather, the boredom of acedia is a boredom with things themselves. It's a boredom with reality as it exists. Acedia sees everything as essentially meaningless and therefore boring. Because things are not meaningful in themselves, the slothful cannot be intrinsically interested in what things are. And therefore, sloth is necessarily accompanied by the need for distraction. Interestingly, to the slothful, there are only diversions. What's a diversion? A diversion is, we all love diversions, right? Because diversions assume that there's a, nor a normal course that you divert from. Go the way less traveled if you're, you know, let's go explore this little pathway and see where it goes. But then you come back to the main path. We often use the, the phrase, I think, variety is the spice of life to describe how important those kinds of diversions are. But it makes no sense to speak of diversions when there is nothing to divert from. 
if all of life is diversion, then that means you've lost your way. You're not diverting from some particular thing to come back to it. Rather, everything is a form of escape from something. And that unnamed something is the burden of reality. My interest is solely a function of my desire, which is constantly flitting like a butterfly from thing to thing as a kind of amusement or as an analgesic, as a way of removing the pain that I feel. One of the hard things about sloth in a world that is haunted by just straight desire, there is no reality or being to reality, it's just what I want it to be, is there's no way to deal with grief. You just have to forget about it. And so, again, the endless stream of distractions becomes an analgesic to make you forget your pain. There's no answer to your pain. You just got to forget about it. You need to be distracted. There's a reason why the therapeutic age of our time is so reliant upon drugs of every form. We pop a pill for everything because there are no answers. You just got to take another pill so that you forget, so that you can move on with your life, so that you can just endure. Peter Lightheart notes that this kind of free self recoils from suffering and pain in order to pursue comfort and pleasure. Philip Reef saw this coming and prophesied in the triumph of the therapeutic that the hospital and the theater would replace the family and the church as the primary institutions in modern society. The hospital to deal with our pain and the theater to divert us in our pleasure. No cost. The cost of the family. You can't raise a family without enduring incredible sacrifice. The church is all about accepting the bonds of Christ by wherein we lose our lives in order to find them. But to the modern mind, that is incredible pain, cost, and we want to avoid it at all costs. And so we anesthetize ourselves with pleasure. Pleasures don't draw us nearer to the Lord and to root us more deeply in our created being. Pleasures are a way of forgetting And the hospital is a way where we can go to get rid of the pain that we don't want to feel. You ever noticed in our culture how nobody wants to suffer pain? I often tell my, my students that one of the things, if you just ask people, you know, go down the street and ask the average Joe, what is right and wrong? Most people will say, you should be able to do whatever it is that you want to do, except for one thing. What is it? Hurt someone, right? Yeah. You can do whatever you want. You just can't hurt anybody. Well, if we simply reduce our whole ethical discourse to that basic one principle, it's really interesting, right? If, if you're able, if freedom is just unbridled, people can do whatever it is that they want, how do you control people like that? How do you get them to do anything? You have to resort to the one fulcrum that pivots everything, right? Pain. You can't hurt anybody. It invests everyone 
If I want you to do something, and you're free to do whatever it is that you want, how do I control you? Well, whatever it is that you want to do has got to hurt me. And suddenly, I'm the victim of everything that you do. That's how I get you to stop. Boy, doesn't that describe what our time is like, right? Everybody is a victim. That's the cost. On the other side, if you want to accomplish something and someone with pain is standing in your way, how do you get what you want? You dehumanize them. It's not a real child. It's a fetus. It's not really a person. Even if it is a person, they can't really feel pain until they're 12. Until they're a person. We keep bumping the age back. Or they're mentally handicapped or deficient or they don't have the right DNA or they're not... You see it? Suddenly people, we dehumanize people so that their inability, their ability to resist us by, offer, by saying that they're experiencing pain, that we have to stop. Suddenly we race them so that that objection of pain doesn't register anymore so that we're free. That's where we are. It's why we have victims and why we have tyrants. And it's all rooted right there in Assyria. Interestingly, I think it is nihilism that is therefore sloth's ultimate end. It isn't just the loss of meaning. That's what we think about when we think about nihilism, that nothing has meaning. After all, the world has meaning. The problem with the nihilist is that he has to deal with the world. The world has meaning. Just saying it doesn't does not make it so. So what do you do? Acedia is ultimately a covenant of death like the death grip of Judge Holden, and it seeks to snuff out meaning in everything. That's really the end of nihilism. It's not the confession that there is no meaning. It's rather that I am going to destroy meaning wherever I find it. I'm going to set myself against the meaning that I see. It is seething rage against reality. And that even includes the reality of our own being, self-loathing and self-hatred. Because I didn't make myself at the end of the day. So, let's move on from this. That's a bleak, grim, bleak picture, right? You've got to feel it, though, because it's our world. How do we fight sloth in our lives and in our home? In the name of freedom, Acedia makes the world a flat, dull, boring place. It turns the rich, colorful, thick nature of being into a bleached, hollow, and thin substitute. All of this is the cost of absolute freedom. Freedom untethered to the world that God made. It's a damnable lie. And we need to teach our children to identify it as such. It's part of developing 
the love of the thing that's behind them so that they can stand up and defend it. Acedia wants to destroy that in our children. It wants them not to have deep loves of real things that they're willing to defend. It wants to make that world thin and bleak and barren so that our children are cowards, so that they will not stand up and they will not fight. They will crater and capitulate. Interestingly, I think acedia ultimately destroys taste. <laughs> that sounds kind of odd, but I think it's true. Taste, interestingly, in its origin and its etymology is the ability to judge. It's not just putting something in your mouth. When we talk about taste, we're talking about someone who judges, has the ability to judge and to discern. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see how gracious the Lord is. It's a comparative. If we're going to taste, we have to be able to see and to judge just how gracious and magnificent the Lord is. How good He is. I tell my gastronomy students that the one goal of this class that I'm teaching them is to help them to know when they are in the presence of greatness. It is a tragic life that walks through reality and never knows when it's in the presence of greatness. Because taste isn't simply a subjective preference. It is judgment about real things. And because it is, it can be shaped. This is what our world is. I mean, when you think about taste in our world, people will say there's no accounting for taste, right? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's what you think it is. It's what your tastes are. If that's the case, your tastes are fixed. You can't do anything to change them. There's nothing to discipline your taste toward. What you like, you like. You've met people who eat that way, don't you? Put food in front of them and either they like it or they don't. But they have no intention on ever changing. That is tragic. And I don't mean just because they don't get to experience really wonderful things. It's tragic about what it says about you as a person made in God's image. Your whole point in life is to grow, to change, to mature, so that you can approve of the good. You have your senses trained to be able to discern between good and evil. You have the capacity to taste, and that taste grows as you mature. To say that you're locked in, that you can't do anything about it, and that I like what I like, is the epitome of immaturity. So one of the most important things in this is to learn to grow your tastes. I love to tell my students about my, one of the things in my life where I learned this was the fact that I did not like, as a young man growing up, I did not like olives at all. <laughs> yes. I think it's because when my mother was pregnant with me, she craved olives and she ate them by the jar and sometimes even drank the brine. I think I got pickled on olives. But I didn't like them. Not green ones, not black ones, nothing. But as a young man growing up, I knew that the problem was with me. Olives 
are a staple of Western civilization, hallowed by every culture. The problem was clearly with me. And I just couldn't like them, though. So every year, I kept trying. I would eat them, and I would try, and I would try, and I didn't like them. I, couldn't, I wasn't going to deceive myself, but I kept trying. Then one year, after I think it was after Christmas, some of our friends gave us a jar of olive tapenade and a baguette. We came home from church, and we were kind of hungry, and we opened the jar of tapenade, opened cut up the baguette and put it on, and I did my annual try, kept giving it a try. I put it in my mouth, and it was like the heavens opened, (laughs) and the angels sang, and I said, glory, hallelujah, I get it. And then I started eating olives of every kind, like an olive fiend. Like a world had been unlocked to me, I now got it. I understood. It was like someone had given me a precious gift. <clears throat> I was ecstatic. That's the way you have to treat reality. You may listen to Beethoven or Bach, and <clears throat> you may say, I don't get it. It's okay. It's good to acknowledge where you are, but don't stop trying, don't stop growing. Realize the problem is with you, not with the thing to be enjoyed, and learn to discipline your desires. Grow up into maturity. It's really crucial and important. So here are some thoughts from from a pastoral perspective of things you can do. I want to start off with the negative, and all the rest are going to be positive. Okay? First negative. Let's get it out of the way. Limit your exposure to the regime of distraction. Do not let it in your life. Say no. I will not be led astray. And you know what I mean. Social media, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, video games. They are the regime of distraction. Now it's true that if you're a Christian young man or woman, you don't hate the world. You've been brought up to love it. But let me tell you that every single one of those mediums has been designed by men in the grip of acedia. And they want to keep you anesthetized. That means there's a pedagogy undergirding them. If you want to, we were just, uh, Randy and I were just watching the other day, uh, yesterday afternoon, The Social Dilemma, the film on, on Netflix. If you are in doubt about social media and its intentions, just watch the film. The people who designed it will tell you what they're doing. So here's my point. If you are a regular consumer, if you just let yourself go, if you, like every other person in our world, just allow these things into your life and you follow the pedagogy that they are offering you, it will lead you away from engagement with life the way that God intends it. That's where it leads. And so as young men and women, this is one of my children like, They don't have social media accounts at all. I want them to grow up unmolested. And that doesn't mean I'm trying to get them out of reality or trying to get them to escape. I don't want them to be formed by that. I want them to be formed by bugs in the backyard. Right? Working with your hands at real things. Learning to love the world and do productive labor. Not just to consume and be distracted. 
I want them to be able to pay attention and have long arcs in their thought. Not be able to sit only for a few moments and then have to be distracted by the next thing because that's the reality. The tension span of the, of the, of the adult person in our time is unbelievably fractionally short. And it's getting shorter. How are they going to be able to listen to sermons? Read books? Think thoughts? We must protect our children from that reality. Watch your life. Are you distracting yourself currently? And why are you distracting yourself? What is it that you're not facing? Don't do that. Be willing to say, if I'm being distracted, if I'm using technology to distract myself, it's because I'm trying to avoid something. What is it that I'm avoiding? I need to face it. And I need to embrace it, not run away from it. That's the pedagogy of distraction. So, okay, that's the one negative thing. Now to positive things. Teach your children to love real things. Things out in the real world. Bugs, birds, flowers, gardens, food, music, dancing, people. People are fascinating. Teach them to love those things. Also, delight in the reality that God has given to you, your wife, your husband, your children, your home, your garden, your interests. Men delight in being men. Lean into it. Love what it means to be a man. Women love what it means to be a woman. Don't resist it. Lean into it. Love it. Study it. Cultivate it. It's because it's who God made you to be. Embrace it and love it. Teach your children to produce rather than to consume. Make things. Real things. Develop real skills. Cultivate real hobbies. Learn to go hunting and to make sausage out of the meat versus playing video games. Learn to cook rather than watching cooking shows. Read out loud to your children versus watching TV. Learn to relax, and this is important, learn to relax by doing something active rather than something passive. Almost all of us think when we try to relax, we don't want to do anything. That's not the way our ancestors relaxed. Yes, there's a time for sitting down and just admiring the grass and sipping a glass of bourbon, right? That's what you should do on the Sabbath and when you rest. But increasingly, we're a culture where we think that what it means to relax is to do nothing. Rather than to relax by going and doing something. Going for a walk. Climbing a mountain. Carving a piece of wood. Reading a book. Those are all forms of relaxation, but they're all forms of doing something. Rather than doing nothing. Or, or more importantly, let someone else do something and we just spectate. That's really key. Don't be a spectator. Be an actor. Get in and do something and learn to cultivate that as a form of relaxation. 
This is a challenging thing for me. I, I, as much as anyone, struggle with this as a modern person. And I've been challenging myself to think about learning to define times, downtimes by doing something active, not just by consuming things that other people have made. There's nothing wrong with watching a television show or whatever. Of course, I want you to understand I'm not talking about that. I'm saying as a habit, a habit of your life. Are you a consumer or are you a producer? Do you value things? What is the first thing that you reach when you have time off? Is it to reach for your phone and start scrolling? Or is it to actually go start building something? That hobby, you know, might be a form, you're creating a dress or some form of needlework or, you know, building furniture out in your backyard. I love to make tube amplifiers out of building kits. That's what I'm talking about. Learn to value things and to produce them in your downtime. Teach your children to take and to love responsibility. Responsibility closes down our options in a blessed way. It doesn't leave everything open to decide. Carl Truman, in a recent conference I was at, said to a young man advising him when he was facing this dilemma at, at a question and answer time, he said, Stop, start closing down your options. Stop living in this undifferentiated, open way where everything is possible before you. You need to close down your options. Get married. Get, raise children. Have children and raise them. Work. Commit yourself to something and cultivate it. Remember, in our culture, that's anathema. You've got to keep your options open, infinitely so. So start closing down your options and embracing responsibility. Responsibility bears the yoke willingly for others. It says, my life is not my own, but it belongs to others, to God, my family, my spouse, my church, my community. Put before your children examples of responsible men and women. And parents, learn to... You can't teach your kids things that you're not willing to embrace yourself. You have to lead the way. So lead the way. And then give your children lots of examples of responsible men and women. Men and women who did the next thing. Who accepted the bonds of responsibility willingly and delighted in them. Teach your children to love limits. The bounded life is the blessed life. This is what Proverbs is all about. Proverbs continually exalts boundaries as the way of freedom. So read your Proverbs to your kids a lot. Let them become the kind of cadence of their youth. Also teach your children to love excellence. Whether that be in sports or in music or in food or in literature. Sharpen, don't flatten reality. The temptation of our time is to flatten everything, to make no distinctions. Everything is the same. But that's not the world that God made. Sharpen reality. Don't flatten it. Do it in a way that's full of grace and has affirmation at its heart, not as a performance sort of orientation. I have to always make that caveat because we also live in a performance culture, don't we? Where suddenly now it's excellence as a form of earning your own salvation, of earning your own worth. 
That's not it at all. We are who we are by the grace of God. And it's out of that grace that we work and labor and strive. Knowing that we've been fully accepted. I'll preach about this tomorrow. So be, stay in tune for more on that. Grace is at the heart of it. But that does not flatten reality. It still sharpens it. Teach your children to love freedom. The cultural inheritance of the West. Study and discuss the foundations of freedom. One of the best ways to do this is to cultivate the love of good books. I know you are all familiar with this. Read out loud to your children stories like the Lord of the Rings. In, in, in the Eastern Bloc countries, the, the people that successfully resisted communism read stories like the Lord of the Rings to their kids after they came home from being indoctrinated in the mandatory public education that they had to endure. Mordor exists. You need to learn to see it. And that's partly the way we do that is by reading to our children's stories so that they, they themselves resound with them. Model for your kids a love of books and stories. One of the best things I ever did for my son was to give him access to my Audible queue. I think I have like 500 books in my Audible library. And I think my son has listened to almost all of them. I knew I was in trouble when I, he was out practicing uh, for lacrosse one day. Uh, at the field practicing by himself, and he had his headset, and I saw him come back. I said, son, what do you, you got your headset? What are you listening to? And he said, oh, I was just listening to Basic, basic Economics by Thomas Sowell while I was out <laughs> doing... I was like, what? <laughs> you were doing what? He just loves to listen to books. And he just, he's listened... When he was 10 years old, he worked his way through about 10 volumes of big history on World War II. He could never read those books on his own, but he could listen to them. He played Legos and listened to The Storm of War by Andrew Peterson, a thousand-page history of World War II. He loved it. That's a great way of doing it. I didn't even realize that was happening. It just sort of happened. But he really loves, to, and therefore, I, you know, he's 16. I took him to the Touchstone Conference this last week before I came here, and he took 10 pages of notes on the speaker. I didn't ask him to take anything. He just... He said, Dad, that was the most stimulating substantive conference I've ever been to. And it's because he's listened to books. Just listened and listened and listened. That's a great way to work with your kids. Teach them to love to listen. Teach your children to be courageous by putting themselves between evil and the good that is to be protected. Self-sacrifice only makes sense when there is something greater than your own personal well-being. Self-sacrifice is oppression in an analgesic society. We do not like to sacrifice ourselves. The preservation of my personal well-being is the highest good and virtue. So we need to teach our children to be courageous, to protect what is good. But they have to love it if they're going to be willing to sacrifice their life for it. Finally, teach your children to love God as the giver of all good things to enjoy. He is the true source of all pleasure. He's the one who created it. Jesus came, we're going to talk about this tomorrow, so that the benediction of the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He came so that that might be said to each one of us. The Father is pleased. And we are to also be pleased. All right, I'm over my time, so I need to be finished there. Uh, thank you for your patience and your, your attentiveness, uh, and we'll 
take a break now, I guess, and then be back for one final talk. Thank you. <laughs>